Hey everyone, it's Paul, and I'm deeply honored to introduce this conversation between Eugene and our guest on this episode, Iris Zafrir, as part of the Divided Families podcast commemoration of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is on January 27th. Because there are so many things about what Iris shares that were very, very inspiring. Of course, her own family's story and how she was able to reconnect with long-lost family members from the Holocaust, but also just her personal journey from going from a place of deep hesitation and trepidation about tapping into that traumatic past to her son basically pushing her off that diving board and her now being somebody who has the courage to share that story with so many people from the younger generation. So to me, who thinks a lot about what closure can look like for the elderly Korean-American community um, who are separated from their families in the Korean War, this was just deeply inspiring, in some ways very complimentary uh, to our last episode with Stephen Vito from the U.S. National Holocaust Museum, because I think both the infrastructure of family tracing uh, that the museum provides and this personal courage somebody like Iris has has shown uh, through this conversation, I think has given me hope and faith that even when physical family reunions are not possible and people pass away, that searching for these family roots and stories across generations can bring a degree of healing um, and perhaps some kind of closure as well. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Iris Zafrir. Today, I have here with me Iris Zafrir. Uh, she's a daughter of two Holocaust survivors who mustered the courage to seek out her family history. And her mother grew up in Hungary. Her father was from Poland. And after the Holocaust, they built a new life in Israel. Um, today, Iris regularly speaks in schools, businesses, houses of worship, and community events. And she's been featured on a lot of media outlets, including the, um, among many things, the On Being blog. And I just mentioned that because Paul and I are uh, great fans of Krista Tippett and her work, so uh, great to make that connection here. But um, thanks so much for joining us today, and is there anything that I missed? Well, thank you very much for having me on today, Eugene. Yep. Uh, the short backstory of this episode is that I got in touch with the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, I had visited a couple times when I lived in D.C., uh, where I met Paul, and the team there was really, really helpful, and they provided us with some videos, uh, some newspaper articles, and some additional contacts at the Family Tracing Service. Um, and among that material was your article. Uh, and yeah, we did a, we actually did an interview with them, but your story was uh, really incredible. And Paul mentioned, like, hey, can you figure out who this is? And I said, oh, I mean, uh, I can do my best. And then I reached out, and you were very, very uh, awesome and, you know, got back to us immediately. So um yeah, I don't think that I have much else to say, but I'm just going to let you 
do what you do best, which is telling your story. Uh, and I guess I'll just ask some questions along the way. But I guess my first question, just to kick things off and get into it, is uh, in the article, you talk about how you began your search for your family history when your son, uh, Avi, asked you to speak about the subject. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, this is the beginning, right? Like, why did he ask you to speak? Uh, and how did that spark kind of manifest itself for you? Sure. Uh, and, and Eugene, let me let me kind of even take a few steps even before that and mm -hmm. just just let our listeners know. Uh, I grew up in a kibbutz in Israel, like like you said in the introduction, both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. Both of them have passed now. They're both of blessed memory. And when when I grew up and my siblings grew up in our household, there was always a sense of heaviness a sense of lack of trust in, in people, uh, and a sense of being alone in the world. And there was just mm -hmm. a lot of heaviness. And we knew where the heaviness and the sense of loneliness came from because our father, Yoshua, was very open about what happened to him. He documented what happened to him. He was also a, a very gifted writer. Uh, he was a published poet, journalist, teacher. So we knew where the pain came from, but it was it was just all around us. And when I was very young, I didn't really want to know very much about it. It was very painful to hear what my father told people and students and um, and audiences about what happened to him, and. And that continued for, for many, many years. And, and really, the first time that I spoke about it publicly is after our son, Avi. What happened was that he was in history class in, his, um, in the sixth grade, and the teacher turned to the class and they said, does anyone know a grandfather, a grandmother, a you know, someone in your family who's willing to come to the classroom and talk about the Holocaust. And Avi raised his hand and he said, my mom will. And so the teacher called me. <laughs> she That's will. right. Exactly. So <laughs> he voluntold me and uh, the teacher called and I, I literally gulped, swallowed hard. And, and really inside my head, I said, you have got to do this. This is the signal. You've got to, to face what happened to your family. You've got to learn more about what happened to your family. And your son is, is asking you to come speak to his class. So, of course, you're going to figure out how to do that. I was really, really, really scared because I've never spoke about it publicly, certainly not to sixth graders. But I, I took it on as a challenge and I prepared a lot. And I knew, because when I prepared, I knew that there are some portions of telling our, our family story that I'm not going to be able to get through it without choking into tears. So I had um, my husband there, and he helped me. There was, in fact, a section that I couldn't get through. So he helped me to get through it. There were a lot of tissues involved. And when I was done, I was just so happy I did it. It really felt like a, a huge achievement, a great sense of conquering my, my hesitation, my fear, 
and and there was a sense of healing because I shared it with with an audience. I got very strong feedback from the kids and from teachers and from parents who were in the room, and that gave me a ton of strength to say, "Okay, this is a new journey, and you're going to continue to do that." Mm-hmm. I think that that's such an amazing kind of. Story mostly because of the fact that you were just forced to do it. I mean, you could have said no, right? But uh, you were put on the spot to do it. And I feel like a lot of people, who especially when it comes to family-related things, we like to say, "Oh, I'm gonna look at my history. You know, I'm gonna ask my parents about things that happened before." And uh, that's just stuff that we say we're gonna do, but never really get to. So I think that being put on the spot like that is pretty amazing. And also. Were there, I just wanted to ask, were there times before where you had kind of come close to that, I don't know, diving board, <laughs> if I were to use a metaphor, uh, were there times where you kind of looked over the edge and you were like, oh, I don't want to do this right now? Did that happen a lot before or was it like, was this time the first real big time that you thought about searching for your family history? It was the the first big, big time because I was in front of an audience and it was part of a history class. So I had to be prepared and I wanted to I wanted to have a really a good presentation so that my audience, mm-hmm. which were sixth graders, that's very important to me. Education is very important to me. So I, I took this assignment very, very seriously. There were times before when people talked to me about it. Of course I participated over the years in Memorial Days, Holocaust Remembered Day, reading a poem or standing. But this was different, right? Our son was there. That was very different. And mm-hmm. like I said, it was it was a, a history class and it deserves a lot of respect. So I wanted to give it the respect and the preparation. And that took a lot of courage for, for myself to do that. Yeah. I think that also a part of what makes that story so amazing to me is that it reminds me of how children just... I mean, you know, there's the cliche that we should all be more like children and children just don't care. <laughs> it's like, oh, my mom will. A hundred percent. And they shouldn't. Yeah. They shouldn't, right? And that's mm. that's where we have so much to learn from our children. I would say more than our children learn from us. So we're all in this together. And this was a sign. And I was like, okay, I need to do something with this sign. Mm. Especially in the face of something, you know, as taboo and enormous as the holocaust a lot of people you know when we grow up it's just that we don't want to touch it at all we don't want to get our hands dirty and say something wrong uh, make a mistake here and there and i feel like for children it's just why can't i talk about it you know like why can't i ask questions about it you're exactly uh, so, you're exactly think, yeah. you're exactly right and that's that's a a big a big lesson for all of us because what what happens is that not talking about any kind of trauma in a family just increases the sense of victimization, the sense of guilt, which uh, of course has nothing to do with the victim. It all belongs completely to the perpetrators. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. just a ve- very healing process to put myself out there. And I said to myself, what's, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to start cry, crying in front of sixth graders. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Big deal right? Let yeah. this big uh-huh. deal happen. And I was completely ready for this. It's it's very human. And I was going to do it. And I was not going to be ashamed 
of this happening to me in front of sixth graders. I think that was a, a, a good a, a good lesson in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. After that, so in terms of the timeline, to come back to the timeline, after you gave that speech or presentation, when did you go to Poland and Germany after, or was that in preparation for the speech? Yeah, so, so it all happened around the same time. Mm-hmm. Our father wanted us, so we are four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I'm the youngest sister. He wanted us to go with him to visit places of significance to him before and during the war. And when we say the war with a big W, in our family, we're talking about World War II and the Holocaust. And I suspect that for mm-hmm. different families, the expression of the war means something different to different families. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to clarify that. So he wanted us to come with him and he asked a number of times and we didn't go with him a number, uh, number of times that he asked. Um, and, and then finally, finally in 2010, we were at a place, each of us, each of the siblings and our father's health was, um, was accommodating enough that we could actually take the trip. And I can tell you that each of us, we're, we're very close, the, the four siblings, and we talk a lot, and we did a lot of preparation for the trip. We were all quite, quite scared of taking this trip. Me, for me personally, mm-hmm. I, was, I was physically ill uh, before, before getting on the airplane. I was, I was just really concerned about what this trip is going to do to me and to my mental health. I, mm-hmm. I just didn't know. But I was at a place in my life that I said, whatever happens, I'm okay with that. And so, so the, the preparation for the trip, actual, the actual pathway that we're, you know, which road we're going to take in Europe, what airport we're coming in, what airport we're flying out of, all of that information and all of that background work, all that work my brother Asaf did. He did all mm. of that. And he's very knowledgeable about our family history, and he he just did an, an amazing job. And without him, we would have never taken this trip. So mm-hmm. he put he put the itinerary together, and of course, the itinerary started with Krakow, where our father was born and grew up, and was a baby. He was a boy. Uh, he was a young teenager when when the war started. And then we continued on to other places of significance to him. Uh, he wanted us, of course, to, to visit the historical area where the Krakow ghetto was. He wanted us to go to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where he was, where he was a slave and a prisoner. And he wanted us to trace the death march where he was moved together with a journey that started with 10,000 prisoners in the winter between 44, 1944 and 1945 and ended up in the, the death and concentration camp of Buchenwald in the Weimar region in Germany. So we traced all of that and finished the trip in, in Buchenwald in, in Germany. And when you said that you, in the article, when you said that you visited the concentration camps, you said going to be a very important moment in my life. And obviously that's the case, but what was it like to... I don't know. Just, I don't even know how to ex- ask that question in a way that 
is you know worthy in any sense but what was it like to be in the concentration camps to walk around and see that these things were you know they're real places and there's nothing that can really substitute for that could you i mean if if at all possible could you tell us what that was like yes so i'll let you know that there were multiple times during the trips during this trip in 2010 that were very emotionally taxing one of one of the days when we were in Krakow, where our father was born and grew up, I just remember sitting down with my sister and I just I just started crying. It was very overwhelming to be in Krakow and to know that I'm walking on sidewalks and by roads where my grandparents, who I never met, they were murdered in the Holocaust, my aunts and uncles who I never met, they were murdered in the Holocaust. They they walked those streets and they were murdered only because they were Jewish. Because mm-hmm. of of because of that. That's it. And and it was a machine and it was a legal machine that murdered them mm-hmm. under Nazi Germany laws. And so it was very overwhelming just to be in Krakow, which is a, a wonderful place. It's a beautiful city. And to think of how ugly things were there before for my family. And it was a very personal. And then, like you, you mentioned, from there, we, we went to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now, Auschwitz-Birkenau, it used to be very well known. Um, we're learning from surveys that less and less people know what Auschwitz-Birkenau stands for and what it means uh, in the course of the history of World War II and the Holocaust. For our family, it's always been the epitome of horror, terror, cruelty, racism. When you say that the identification is, you know, like people, less people are identifying it today, is that just among the younger generation or is that just in general? Because I feel like for me too, it's the most, as you said, the most famous kind of association with horror and all of these atrocities. Yeah, I I don't want to misrepresent the numbers. I just, I just feel like there was a, a survey recently done by the, the Pew Research Center and they identified that it, it, around half, if not more than half of millennials don't know what Auschwitz is. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, it's, it's quite overwhelming. Yeah. To learn the statistics yeah actually i'm thinking back to just to have a quick you know interjection before i let you get back to what you were about to say which is um i feel like you're really about to go into your story so i'm sorry for interrupting but uh in high school when i took world history i feel like maybe that maybe i just owe this all to that one high school teacher because i feel like we went through a whole class on or i guess a little unit on genocide so we watched this was like the single most emotionally taxing couple weeks of my entire high school, maybe academic career, but I want us at least at least in high school for sure, uh, where we watched a lot of uh, Holocaust videos and then Rwandan genocide videos and then Nanking genocide videos. So, yeah, maybe I'm just fortunate to be one of the millennials that got that education, and maybe that wasn't supposed to be taught, but my teacher just you know, said we have to know. And, and I'm, I guess now in light of the uh, information that you just presented, I guess I'm more thankful for that. And also more glad that we're doing this. Yeah. 
No, 100%. And, you know, you're bringing up a really important point, which the keyword in mm-hmm. all of this is education. And because because it, it did something, right? Um, you, you felt something in the, you're, you're talking about it years and years and years after high school. And so, so that's what education does, right? It, it brings us to understand other people, um, world events and how they relate to our family history. And I think overall education makes us more tolerant and more understanding of another person, which is such a basic human need. Um, unless someone stops the education or unless someone says that certain things should not be taught. Yeah, and I think that also, even though at that point in high school, I didn't know exactly, you know, the intricacies of geopolitics, like the history, you know, exactly what was going on. Later on, when I did learn those things and fill in those gaps, those kind of core uh, memories of those incidents did stay in my mind. So I think that yeah, I think that, I mean, there is that cliche saying that, you know, you're going to remember how you feel way more than the logical, you know, facts exactly. and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but to get back to your story. Yeah, so so the way the itinerary worked for us in um, that those 10 days when we went to Poland and Germany, we ended up arriving in Birkenau at night and it was raining and we we arrived and my brother was driving the van and i was sitting in the back seat with my father and the the museum part was closed but we were able to drive around it because we wanted to make sure that we start to see it even though it was raining and it was dark and that were there were some lights available on the area that is commemorated. And as we drove in the drizzle, my father looked out into the space and he said in Hebrew, he said, Tov Shizanigmar, which means in Hebrew, it is good, but it is over. And Mm. I remember this very, very well. Because what what I took away is that this is what's so scary about wars, about famine, about traumas that families go through all over the world. Every geography you pick, there's been a genocide. And Mm -hmm. the way we think about our day as human is when things start and when they finish. And we have a sense of when things are going to happen, whether it's holidays, punctuation that happens to our, to our life with weekends or bedtime or brushing teeth time. And what I took away from these words of it is good that it is over, that he didn't know if and when, the horror that started in the 1930s in Europe is going to ever finish. So for me, it was, um, it was a very emotional moment. And that was my introduction in person to seeing Birkenau. Because after that, we were all 
quiet in the car. And then, mm-hmm. and then we, we went back the next morning and the next morning it was still kind of raining and kind of muddish. But we said to him, to Abba, to Yoshua, Abba means father in Hebrew. We said that we would like to go with him to one of the barracks and so that he can explain to us what was going on in the barracks. And what's important to understand is that not a lot is left in the site in Birkenau because the Nazis were trying to cover up the war atrocities as they were retreating. Mm-hmm. Buchenwald sits in Poland and as they were retreating into Germany. So they tried to burn the crematorium and the gas chambers and the barracks. But some some is still left there. And so we visited a couple of the barracks that are still standing there. They're part of the, the Birkenau Museum. And we entered. And so he explained to us and we looked at the at the sleeping arrangements, which were wooden beds. I don't know if beds is the right way to call them. It was all a wooden structure, three platforms, and it was eight prisoners to a platform in each so each bed arrangement would hold twenty four people and um it was it was just really, really meaningful for all of us to hear him look at it and talk to us about it. I can't even imagine like how your father found the courage to go. Like it took you so much courage to tell that story, right? And for him to actually go back and bring you guys there. How do you think he, like, what do you think it was, uh, it was about him that allowed him to do that? You know, like I would never want to go back, you know. So, yeah, was there something particular about him that uh, really latched onto the importance of history? This is what I'm. One of the things I'm most grateful for is for the parents that I that I had, and courage was was a very important currency in our household, if not the most important currency. And and so this is where we, we grew up, where. My parents made a decision. They dealt with their trauma and the horrors that they remembered at nights and the nightmares. And in the morning, they would get up and they would be productive and they worked in the community and they built a family and they helped their neighbors. So it's a testament to their strength and to their determination. And I think it's important for us to understand that not all victims of trauma are able to do this or can do this. And it's Mm -hmm. not their fault. It's just different people have different composition and different temperaments. And I was lucky to be born to people that decided that they're going to build a life and that they're going to do what they can to find kindness and happiness in, in their life. And so, so it was, it was very clear to us as the children that we must go with him that we were not as courageous mm-hmm. as he was until we were older and more mature. And how did the trip, before we move on to your experience with the 
uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum's Family Tracing Service. Uh, I do want to get to that. But before that, the last thing about your trip that I wanted to ask was, how did it bring your siblings together? As you mentioned, uh, you were crying and one of your siblings, you know, comforted you. Uh, Did you guys have like a debrief at the end or many debriefs throughout how did you yeah how did it kind of bring your you guys together we are we are the siblings of of pre-brief mid-brief debriefs <laughs> um we're all about it um we would get up uh, early in the morning we would take a walk together um our, our father by the time that we were able to go on a trip with him he was um he was 80 years old and he was in a wheelchair so his health was not mm-hmm. was not great but we are always always very supportive of each other so we would walk in the morning and talk about the day before and what the, the, the this coming day is bringing and then we would do the exact same thing in the evening and kind of do a round round table just kind of get together in the same room and talk about how we each of the day uh, went for us and what we're feeling. So it was, it was, it was just very strengthening and supportive environment to take a trip like this. Mm. I guess afterwards you did some more research and tried to find even more information about your family history. Could you bring us through, I guess, you know, a brief kind of synopsis of how that worked in terms of your experience with the family tracing service. And I mean, the story is like something that you can't even, you know, even like a writer can't even make a, like the drama involved in um, that story. So yeah, could you just take us through that? I think you would do a much better job than me. No problem. So so when we came back from the trip, th- this trip, as expected, just made enormous amount of impression on me. And I, but by that time, I, I really felt that okay, I really, I got this, you know, I'm definitely going to talk about my family history. Yes, it's going to continue to be, to be hard. And I'm going to need a lot of tissues, but I'm definitely doing this. And I'm going to learn as much as I can about my family history. And I'm going to dedicate time and effort and thought to remembering my family member, my family members in an active way. So that means doing research, speaking about them, and doing what I can to to really create the memory and and bring it to life, mm-hmm. and to tell as many people as I can about about this story from from our family family's perspective. It's a personal story to me and to my family, and so. In the process of that, I started to write a book, and and there was a there was a particular piece in the history of the family when they were forced to enter the Krakow ghetto in 1941 that I didn't quite understand, and so what what I did is I called my brother Asaf and I said, "Hey, let's figure out what happened there," and he's like, "You know." There's not a lot of information available. You're right. This is this remains an open question. And so what I did is I reached out to the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and I, I first wanted to, to know as much as possible about our family members. So I gave them the names of our family members, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles that were murdered in the Holocaust, and I used their tracing services. And I worked with a lady by the name of Laura, Laura Ivanov, 
in the tracing services and she she helped me she returned emails which told me that there is no information available for all of our family members aside from one mm. and that was abba that was our father's oldest sister her name was shendelea mm. and she was the first of the seven siblings so my father is child number 3 shendelea was child number 1 There was another boy, Israel, between them, and there were four younger siblings. And so what we learned from the documents that Laura returned to me about Shendelea, it was over 50 documents, was that Shendelea actually survived the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. She survived the Shoah. Shoah means Holocaust in Hebrew. And not only that, in 1949, she moved to Israel, and the ship records showed that that she was married and that she had a baby. And so I I looked at the documents and I'm like for sure there is a mistake mm-hmm. here, there's a confusion. I sent all the documents to my siblings in Israel to Uri, Asaf and Ola and I said why don't you take a look at it? And so they did and they followed up and what ha- what the result of their follow up was that we learned that Chendelea in fact moved to Israel in 1949 she she was married she had a baby and we also learned that she died in 1974 her husband passed a little bit after her and she left in the family two children a boy and a girl and so my siblings traced them as well and that's how we for the first time in our life met cousins mm-hmm. we never even knew what a cousin is and so we met our cousins and then in november of 2013 we had a family reunion and our father was still alive so he was able to meet the children of his long lost sister for the first time mm-hmm. and was there something about how like they lived really really close to your other relatives something like you know they are right next door and you just didn't know until then yeah israel is a very small country so in united states terms it feels like next door they lived uh, about 2 hours away mm-hmm. from each other and the reason that they didn't find each other so my father after the war both in displaced persons camps and utilizing other tracing services that were offered in europe after the war to people he tried to find family members but couldn't and then after he was in israel he worked with yad vashem museum in jerusalem to try to find family members so he he entered questionnaires but here's the thing he used the family last name from poland which was livlich well by that time shendelea his older sister married she had a different last mm-hmm. name livlich and it's not like today that we can cross check facts and utilize different records to cross check mm-hmm. validity and truthfulness in trace or for that matter do dna testing mm-hmm. that was not available in late 40s early 50s and so so he could not find her so he gave up and he turned all of his attention to building a new life and a new family and what happened from shandel's perspective is she was so traumatized by the war that she forbade to speak about the holocaust and what happened in their household so her children did not even know 
my father's name. They did know that she had a family and everyone was murdered, but that's it. Mm. They were forbidden from speaking about the horrors. So it got, just goes to show you the different families deal with trauma differently. Mm -hmm. And when you had the family reunion, was it really awkward? Or was it, you know, as soon as you guys saw each other, there was some kind of kinship and it made sense? Because we've had many stories on this podcast where uh, in some cases, you know, the reunion is great and is exactly, you know, it goes happily ever after like you'd expect it to. And then there are other cases where it's very, very awkward. What was your experience like? Uh, it was it was an immediate sense of kinship. Mm. Uh, what what happened was that um, my brother Uri called and did the first phone conversations mm. with uh, my cousins, and they right away just the exchange of of places and a few names, and it was very clear that we're talking about family and that's it that was pretty much all it took i will tell you the person that we were very careful of how we're going to break the news to was abba was our father because we were not sure how he's going to react to that and so we we had i joined on the phone and my siblings were sitting with him uh, in israel in the kibbutz and the conversation went something along those lines my brother said, Abba, what would you say if we told you that Shendelea mm. actually survived the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. And he said, I will tell you that I don't believe you. Mm -hmm. And my brother said, well, what would you say if we told you that we actually have evidence that she, she really did survive the Shoah and she lived and she came to Israel? And he said, I will tell you that you're not with the right mind mm -hmm. if you told me and and then and then the the last question was well we would like to show you evidence and what we what we can show you is we would like to to make a meeting between you and Shandel's children Shandel unfortunately passed but her children are alive would you like to meet them and that's when he said, I would, I would love to meet them. Mm. There was this one part in the article that I really liked and thought was a little bit curious as well, uh, where you guys, I'm not sure where this Holocaust memorial was, but you see you guys saw her name on the memorial because she was believed to have been killed. And I think you said it was very powerful to see her name there, knowing that she didn't actually you know, she was not actually killed in the camps, right? What was so powerful about that? I understand that it's powerful, but I just wanted to see if you could uh, explain a little bit more. And maybe you don't know, but maybe we'll figure out as we're speaking. Yeah, no, um, I can tell you. Um, so w what it is, is that in the kibbutz where I grew up, Kibbutz Mishmar Negev, it's in the southern part of Israel, we have a beautiful setting where we have a memorial for family members of people who started the kibbutz and who lived in the kibbutz, who had family members who were murdered during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So it's a memorial. And so for my father, there is all the, the names of his, of his parents. For my mother, there are the names of her parents. And for my father, there are the names of his six siblings that he 
for all he knew all those years is that he had six siblings and all of them were murdered in the Holocaust. And so the name Shendelea was one of the names etched in the stone as part of this memorial Mm -hmm. that I'm talking about. And so all the years, every year in Israel, there's Holocaust Memorial Day. Internationally, there's Holocaust Remembrance Day. We would gather in this in this place and do a memorial service and Shendelea's name was there, right? It was as obvious as as any natural phenomenon that everyone knew that Ab, Abba, all of his siblings were murdered in the Shoah mm-hmm. until we made this discovery. And so for our cousins, we took them to this memorial site and we showed them that their mother's name Obviously, it's their mother. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're alive. Obviously, uh, their mother survived the Shoah to, to start a new family and have them. They saw that their mother's name is on a memorial of people that were murdered in the Shoah. Mm-hmm. But it's not so because she survived. And until 2013, we did not know that. And they didn't know. they did not know about us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's actually it's an incredible phenomenon, but also it's in there are actually other instances of this uh, in other episodes of this podcast too uh, that will probably be out in the future. But I think yeah, that's just such a unbelievable situation. I guess in terms of to move into wrapping things up, I was curious to hear about your book, which has a great title, "Touching Our Trembling Places," and you said that. The title alludes to these places that we have within ourselves, and when we talk about them or think about them, we come to tears. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by these places? And I really like the title a lot, but I'll have you speak to it. Um, What are these places? Can we, do all of us have these places even though we don't know that they're there yet? Because if we haven't embarked on a search for our family history, maybe we don't know that they exist, but they're nonetheless there. But yeah, what it what are these places? Yeah, you know, this is this is really based upon a saying that my oldest brother, Uri, he always talks in the context of our family history about our trembling places, which in Hebrew the words are Hamikomot Harotatim. Mikomot means places, Rotatim means trembling. And you know how words have a certain effect on exactly to your earlier point about how we feel, and that's what's left with us. We are biological beings, and these are places inside of us, and I truly believe that every person, every family has a story that they carry. Some of them are very difficult stories. Some of them are happy stories. Every single person has a story. Every family has a history. And so for for me personally, I can talk about what my trembling places are, which is opening up and not only telling the story of what happened to my parents during the Holocaust and how the steps of genocide 
start from making up stories about people that look different from us, making up lies so that it's easier for us to hate someone else. It starts with words and it goes and it can end up in murderous acts and it can end up in genocide. And so for me to tell the personal stories of the grandparents I never knew, the aunts and uncles I never knew, and that they were real people with names and histories and foods that they prepared and holidays and just regular life that they lived and things that they were funny about and things that they would get upset about. For me, that's my trembling places. And it's, I talk about it now with a straight face, but it's been a journey for me to be able to even say those words and to, to say, yeah, this is my family, this is our history, and I'm going to tell you ab about it. And to be open to the pain that comes from the loss. I am very glad that I asked that question because, uh, yeah, I really like those words. And I think that, at least for me, trembling is not merely, a, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? Necessarily, it could be just this state of awe or respect or sadness it can be it's very multifaceted so i do really like that word and yeah <laughs> i don't have much more to say about that yes yes um, the last question that i had was you talk about how telling your story and i guess sharing your family's experience is healing what makes it healing and i agree that it is healing but what do you think makes it so healing? I think it has to do with the strength that comes from moving from being ashamed or thinking that somehow I am alone because these horrific things happen to my family, being confused, not even able to thinking through with clarity about what this means. And that's what's so tragic about any kind of victimhood, including what happens in genocides, is that it leaves people very, very confused and very, very hurt for many, many years. And so for me, the healing comes from saying, first of all, I'm not going to be ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. saying out loud it's completely fine that I'm going to be crying in public if someone asks me a question about my mom's history uh, there is nothing for me to be ashamed of the fact that uh, I will be crying in public about this and owning it and saying this is this is who I am and it gives a release for me and from the feedback I've gotten from my audiences, it gives a release to them because it says, we're allowed to. In fact, it strengthened us. And the shame belongs with the perpetrators, not with us. Mm. Yeah, I think that I haven't thought about it as deeply before, but I think that that uh, really helps me understand the healing power of telling the story because a lot of it is actually, as you said, it's a little bit in your head, right? It's this shame and also expectation that people will 
this it, it's almost irrational expectation that people will accost you for telling your story or just oh this just you know not take your story with the respect that um, it deserves but we almost never find that that's the case right and in, in you are afraid of telling your story to sixth graders and as you had mentioned in the beginning just to bring things full circle there's no rational reason for you to be afraid of telling your story to sixth graders right no no sixth sixth grader i mean maybe one but definitely not the whole class is going to stand up and say hey your story is meaningless like no one's gonna no sixth grader is gonna do that right so um i think that the healing power really comes from putting yourself out there being vulnerable and then being affirmed that you know these fears that you had are they are kind of irrational or are wrapped up in this shame that you are able to process through the telling of the story and i'm sure that you've experienced this many times in terms of your audiences as you mentioned for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast thanks as always to flannel albert for the wonderful music and see you next time